Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. The most popular Christian song when COVID went global in uh, 2020 was Waymaker. And just in case you're wondering what that picture is, is a picture of Moses at the Red Sea. It's a song that we're familiar, here, uh, familiar with here at Windsor Road. The song was actually composed and released way back in 2015. Written and performed by a Nigerian artist, the inspiration of the song comes from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 5. The late Ralph Winter, a giant in the field of missiology, posits that Genesis chapter 1 to 11 is actually the introduction rather than the beginning of the whole Bible because these 11 chapters set the stage upon which all the subsequent biblical events are played out. So in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we're introduced to God, to the beauty of creation and the monumental problem of evil and sin and its consequences. All is lost, all is hopeless, until we come to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. This, according to Winter, is the beginning of the Bible where God announces and activates his rescue plan to save the whole of humankind, beginning with the man named Abraham, the founder of the nation of Israel, and through his ultimate descendant, Jesus Christ. This is the original Great Commission, if you like. And it is no coincidence that Abraham was the first human being to be justified by faith, a doctrine which lies at the very heart of the Christian message. And so we see throughout the Old Testament, God, the way maker, the miracle worker, the promise keeper, the light and the darkness working nonstop to bring to fruition his salvation plan for the whole world through Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, this means even when we don't see it, even when we don't feel it, even when we don't know it, God is never distant. He never stops working in the background to bring about his good and excellent purpose for the world and for each one of us individually, but according to his timetable, something that all of us find extremely frustrating, don't we? But this is the truth that I want us to see this morning as we come to the events in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 38. And these events have been in the making since Genesis chapter 12. Two women, cousins, are going to receive news that they would be pregnant. The problem is one is barren and the other is a virgin. An impossible situation, but that's the kind of situation that God thrives in. He's the God of the impossible who never stops working, even when things look all bleak, even when all hope is lost. That's because God is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he's going to do, often in very surprising and unexpected ways. So Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 20. I'll read to us. In the, name of, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless, 
because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel Gabriel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. The passage begins what appears at first glance a trivial historical reference to the reign of Herod the Great from 37 to 4 B.C., I think Luke was trying to point out two very significant things in the phrase, in the days of Herod, king of Judah, Judea. Firstly, the last time God spoke to the people of Israel was around 400 years ago, and since then he had been silent, and he spoke through the prophet of Malachi. Now, it would have been easy for the people of Israel to conclude that God has gone to sleep and doesn't care anymore and has abandoned them because of his silence. But quite the contrary, as we know, God was actively working behind the scenes, biding his time. And interestingly and significantly, Zechariah's name, name means God remembers. So for those of you who are in that situation. You feel God is silent. You wonder if, if, if you matter at all to God, if you wonder if, if, if God notices you at all. Then I want to tell you that God remembers, that God is busy working behind the scenes. Secondly, Herod's reign would have been remembered in, in the way as history remembers the reign of Adolf Hitler. It's the equivalent of historians saying, during the reign of Adolf Hitler. Because Herod, a non-Jew, was a psychopath. He did not hesitate in killing anyone he saw was a threat to his power, including his sons. A fifth, a fifth century historian wrote, 
when Caesar Augustus heard that, that Herod, king of the Jews, had ordered boys in, in Syria under the age of two years to be put to death, and that the king's son was among those killed, he said, I'd rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Now, this is the backdrop for Zechariah's encounter with God. In addition, there's also personal grief and sadness in the background as well. Zechariah was one of at least 18,000 priests, between 18,000 scholars estimate between 18,000 to 20,000 priests, divided into 24 divisions, of which Abijah, the order Zechariah belonged to, was the eighth. Each division was on temple duties on a rotating basis, twice a year for one week each time. With one temple and so many priests, lots were cast to determine which priests would perform what duties. Zechariah was selected to offer incense in the holy place. It was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Occurring twice a day, he would trim the wick on the lampstand and burn incense on the altar of incense in front of the veil separating him from the most holy place where the Ark of Covenant was located. This would be the one and only time Zechariah did this, though we can't be certain. Luke described Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth as righteous and committed followers of Yahweh, but they were childless. Not only that, they were old and beyond the point of childbearing age. In ancient societies, childlessness did not just bring personal heartache, but great reproach. Your economic status, your personal standing in the community depended on children. Therefore, women who had children were seen as blessed, as celebrities, but women who couldn't have children were considered worthless, a disgrace in their own eyes and in the societies they lived in. And there weren't any IVF programs available, of course, at the time. So if you were childless, you were a disgrace. And this is the context of Elizabeth's reflection five months into, into her pregnancy when she said, the Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. It wasn't, oh God, thank you for fulfilling my heart's longing and desire to be a mother. It was, thank you, Lord, for taking away my disgrace amongst the people. So things were pretty bleak, in other words, spiritually, politically, and personally. But God did not switch off. Let me repeat, even when we don't see it, even when we don't feel it, even when we don't know it, God is the God of the impossible. He keeps working, that it, he is who he says he is and that he will do what he has promised to do in his way and in his time. But we also see something else through the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth's childlessness. Just because you're walking closely with the Lord and following him doesn't mean that God owes you a life free from pain, disappointment, and heartache. Conversely, if you experience pain, disappointment, and heartache, don't think for one minute that God is punishing you. 
Instead, bring your weary and your broken hearts to the Lord. Keep having faith in him. Receive his comfort and encouragement as Zechariah and Elizabeth did, even though I'm sure they didn't do it perfectly. Disgrace they felt, particularly Elizabeth, but they did not become bitter toward God at not being able to start a family. They kept walking with the Lord. They kept serving God faithfully despite their heartache. God announces good news to Zechariah through the angel Gabriel that he and Elizabeth would be proud parents of a son. They're to name him John, and he would bring great joy to them, but also to many, because he will be the fulfillment of a prophecy given by Malachi in chapter 3, verse 1 and 4, verse 5, God's last prophet some 400 years ago. John, filled with the Spirit, will be a prophet and the greatest one of all. He will be the forerunner of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus Christ. This is the moment in history God has been working towards since Genesis chapter 12. Zechariah quite understandably doubts Gabriel's promise. And in response, God, uh, Gabriel tells Zechariah, in effect, just be quiet for a while and watch God work. Feels harsh? But for his unbelief, Zechariah becomes temporarily mute for nine months until John was born. This was not punishment, but God's loving discipline, which is always redemptive. God's loving discipline is about training, it's about instruction, and it's about restoration. We'll come back to him later. Next, Gabriel pays Mary a visit to deliver the same message that will rock her and Joseph. In verse 26, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sends the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings. You who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God, even Elizabeth. Your relative is going to have a child in her old age. And she, who was said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. In another version it says, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me 
be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. Notice Gabriel's references to key figures in the Old Testament, Jacob and David and all, all of whom are part of Jesus' family tree. I want to point out three things from the passage. Firstly, Nazareth slash Galilee, north of Jerusalem, is an odd choice for such a divine history-making announcement in contrast to news of John's birth at the temple. It was a remote village, Nazareth, Jewish village that had been turned into a garrison of uh, Roman soldiers. It was a bathhouse there. And so you can imagine the immorality that goes on. You know, here are these soldiers. They're starving. You know, they're, they're, they're singles and they're starving for, for intimacy, physical intimacy. Consequently, the Jews of Nazareth gained a reputation for immorality. Galilee as a region was not a respected region either. This explains why when Nathaniel, a disciple, got told that Jesus, the Messiah, hailed from Nazareth, he skeptically said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Are you sure that the Messiah is from Nazareth? Surely not of all places. Secondly, Mary was an ordinary, low-standing young gal engaged to be married to Joseph. But she's called highly favored and one who has found favor. She's chosen as God's vessel to bear his son who will be conceived of the Holy Spirit, not because of her own merit, not because of anything extraordinary about Mary, but because of God's undeserved and unmerited favor. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you are highly favored by God because of his grace alone. It's not because of what you have done or can do. It's because of what Jesus has done. But we can't overlook her character either, seen in response seen in her response to Gabriel. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Now try and imagine the gravity of his situation. And I don't think we, we know, fully understand the gravity of his situation. She's a virgin, and she's being asked to bear a child as a virgin. Just think of the scandal. Just think of the stares as she shows. You're not married. Who's the father? And Joseph is a dignified man, so crikey. How could you do this to Joseph? Think of the innuendos, the gossip, the ridicule she and her family, not just her, but her family would be subjected to. What kind of daughter did you raise up? A whore? What an embarrassment. You should be ashamed of what did you do wrong? I thought you guys were a dignified family, and here your daughter is sleeping around. Now she's pregnant. Her future ahead will be filled with uncertainty, starting with Joseph's response to her news of pregnancy. He may well call off her engagement. In fact, she, he thought about it. And if he had canceled the engagement, she would have ended up being a single mom but destitute. No one would touch her. No one would marry her. 
So many unknowns, but God assures her that everything will be okay because he is for her, not against her. He will be with her. And on that basis, on that basis alone, on the basis of God being who he says he is and that he will do what he's promised to do, she gives her yes to him, her willingness and availability to trust and serve God even at great personal cost are qualities that God highly prizes. Mary is an example of humility, of submission and faith in God. The humble setting of Gabriel's announcement also parallels the humble nature of Jesus' birth, his character and ministry. It reveals the character, the nature of, of God's, uh, God's heart. Bach writes, God loves those who are humble in spirit. Even his son as the king of Israel, the promised one of all time, is born of a humble country maiden. This example, uh, example of unpretentiousness is an attitude that we as his children should possess. We might expect great things from God and anticipate that he will work through the great in society, but God shows his greatness by working with anyone on the street who's willing to be used by him. Spiritual greatness is not a matter of social class, monetary clout, or degreed background. It is a function of the heart. God's approach stands in contrast to the type of credentials our world, our world looks for and honors. And the third thing I want to point out, and I think some of you may have already noticed and picked up, both were told that God was going to do something impossible for them. But when Zechariah asks how it is going to happen, God takes his voice away for nine months. Sounds harsh, right? And yet when Mary asks a similar question, nothing happens to her. What's going on there? Is God a sexist? Did God give Mary preferential treatment because she's a young gal and virgin? At first glance, their questions look the same, but the attitude behind their question is very, very different. Here is Zechariah's response again. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? Another version says, how will I know? For certain. How will I know for certain? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The original Greek phrases it like this, by what will I know this? Underpinning Zechariah's question is unbelief. He's saying to the angel, a baby at our age? Get serious, Gabriel. A baby at our age? Get serious, Gabriel. I need proof. I need more proof before I am convinced. That's what Zechariah was saying to Gabriel. An actual angel, think about it, an actual angel is standing right in front of him, and he wants more proof. Seriously? And that's why Gabriel said, I am Gabriel, sent by God. And you want more proof that what I'm saying is true? Mary, on the other hand, was genuinely puzzled and maybe even positively, positively curious with Gabriel's news. She's a simple teen, but she knows her biology. 
right? Gabriel, how will I, how will I fall pregnant since I've never had sex and since I'm not planning to until Joe and I get married? How is it going to happen in the light of biology? And Gabriel obliges by giving Mary a straightforward answer that her conception would be supernatural, involving no man. In other words, Mary was wanting to know how the miracle will happen, whereas Zechariah couldn't believe the miracle will happen. Does that make sense? Mary accepted that the miracle will happen. She was just asking how, whereas Zechariah did not believe that the miracle will happen. In Zechariah and Mary, God asks for their trust in his character and an ability, that he is the God of the impossible, that he is who he says he is, and that he will never stop working to accomplish what he says he's going to do, often in very surprising and unexpected ways. While Mary put her faith in God, Zechariah fell short. All of us are given a choice. Each one of us is given a choice. When we face, certain, certain, face circumstances in which God calls us to trust him, and we have a choice whether to trust him or to withdraw our trust from him. When we face challenging circumstances that stretches our faith, we can either respond like Mary or Zechariah. If we aspire to be Mary, like Mary, we must turn to Jesus, the one who initiates and perfects our faith in him, the one who said to God the Father at the Garden of Gethsemane, if my suffering, if my death is going to bring life, then not my will be done, but yours. I trust you that you know what's best, not only for me, but you know what's best for the world. So as an application, I'd like us today or during the week to consider the following questions as you read the passage again. It's found in the pastor's notes and the church bulletin that was sent to you. So if you haven't got it, just uh, write to the church and let us know that you want to receive a news bulletin. But here the question. If Gabriel turns up and says to you, you are highly favored, you're found favor with God, can you imagine how you might respond and why? The fact of the matter is you don't have to wait for the angel to tell you that. God's word tells you that. So a better question might be, how are you responding to the truth that you are highly favored because of God's unmerited favor? The second question to reflect on is, what ways are you like Zachariah? Thirdly, in what ways are you not like Mary? In what ways are you to be like Mary? What would need to change for that to happen? And a more general question, what can you take away from the passage on why we can put our faith to God? And after you've done that, talk to God. Interact with God after you've done some reflection. Let us pray. The choice is clear when we contrast Mary and Zechariah. We know that Mary put her faith in you and Zechariah didn't. And so we turn to you, Jesus, the initiator and the perfecter of our faith. Give us, teach us, and give us faith like Mary. Help us to say when we're faced with challenging, confusing, and painful situations. Lord, not my will be done, 
but yours. Even, I don't, even though I don't understand what life is throwing at me right now, I choose to put my trust in you. But Lord, we don't want to write Zechariah completely off either. Because after the nine months, we could see that he changed. In that nine months of reflecting, he became a different man. So there is hope for all of us. And Lord, we have been like Zechariah, and we will continue to be like Zechariah. God, I need more proof. God, I don't trust you. But Lord, I ask that when we are drawn aside to reflect on our actions and see where we have withdrawn faith from you and seen when we have moved in unbelief, that we will repent and turn back to you like Zechariah did. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.